Welcome to Slaking Thirsts, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart, who is seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts would meet and both thirsts would be slaked. Well, friends, it's really good to be back at a Theology on Tap. I, uh, I'm really overjoyed to see that this ministry is back up and running. I was I had the great good honor and privilege of uh, running Theology on Tap Heights when I was the parochial vicar at Communion of Saints Parish. That was one of the very first things that the Lord gave me to do when I was there as a parochial vicar. I was, I was ordained in 2016, and we were sitting around the boardroom downtown with Bishop Lennon, and he was handing us our assignments. And he looks at me, and he says, I was the last one to get my assignment. He says, Patrick, I am uh, assigning you to a parish that's very old in our diocese, very beautiful. And it's a place that needs inspiration. So he goes, I'm sending you to Communion of Saints in Cleveland Heights. And no joke, literally the very first thought that popped in my head was, I want to start Theology on Tap, and I want to do it at Nighttown. So raise your hand, by the way, if anybody ever went to Theology on Tap Heights at Nighttown. Yeah, what's up, friends? Okay. Well, it's, uh, we'll talk afterwards. Have a nice reunion picture. That's great. That was such a fun time. It was such a fun ministry. It was such a, a life-giving thing to be able to do that. Every month, bring in great speakers packed into that jazz club. It was awesome. It was absolutely awesome. The last event that we had was a joint effort. Theology on Tap Heights and Theology on Tap West came together to host Abby Johnson, which was really cool. We had like 400 people. It was at, oh, it was awesome. It was at, um, oh, Father Eric just walked in. Father Eric, where was that? Where do we have that? It was at a Hilton? Yeah. You remember? Mayfield, yeah. Yeah, that was March 4th of 2020. And then the world shut down, like a week later. Oh, man. But we got that in just in the nick of time. That was awesome. We would have lost so much money. <laughs> anyway, all right, well, it's great to be back. It's great to be with you tonight. And, uh, yeah, I'm just very excited. I'm very excited to speak about uh, this very uplifting topic, embracing sister death, the most sane way to live well. So it's a very interesting uh, idea that they pitched to me. We want you to talk about death. We want you to talk about living with the end in mind, all of these things. And I, I suggested this title and uh, they put it out there on social media. And a friend of mine, her name is Mary Beth, she sent me a message. She was like, she was very concerned. She's very sweet, very innocent. She was like, Patrick, what, what, are, you, what are you talking about? Like, this makes me very nervous. Like, like what is this? And uh, so I sent her this picture. Um, I said, this is what I'm talking about. This is, this, this is sister death. Uh, I was like, no, 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 I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. It's not, it's not a heavy metal band. The title, Sister Death, it, it comes from something way less metal. It comes from, it comes from a poem that St. Francis of Assisi wrote. So Francis of Assisi, who loves St. Francis? Raise your hand for St. Francis. St. Francis of Assisi, he wrote this beautiful canticle called the Canticle of Creation. And he says this. He says this. Be praised, my Lord, for Sister Earth, our mother, who nourishes us and sustains us, bringing forth fruits and vegetables of many kinds and flowers of many colors. Be praised, my Lord, for those who forgive for love of you and for those who bear sickness and weakness and peace and patience. You will grant them a crown. Be praised, my Lord, for our sister, death, whom we must all face. I praise and bless you, Lord, and I give thanks to you, and I will serve you in all humility. 
that the culmination of this poem that he wrote, talking about creation, talking about all these different elements of creation, Francis acknowledges, he reverences death, and he calls death sister. And what's the line? Sister death, whom we must all face. It's a pretty astonishing thing to think about, that we will all face death. Every single person you know, every single person you love will face death. You will face death. I will face death. Before St. Francis wrote this, before he could call death his sister, his outlook on death was just like any of our outlooks on death. Before he was St. Francis, he was still very much spoiled Francesco, right? He was still very much an unconverted man. That his view of death, we could say, is very much summarized by what this guy named Ernest Beckler wrote. He was a, I won't go into his biography. Anyway, his quote is great. This is, I think it well sum, sums up his, Francis's view, and probably most contemporary Americans, their views on death. He says this, the idea of death, the fear of it, haunts the human animal like nothing else. It is the mainspring of human activity, activity designed largely to avoid the fatality of death, to overcome it by denying in some way that it is the final destiny for man. It's a very bleak, very bleak view. This proposal that death is the final destiny of man. I mean, without Jesus Christ, without Jesus Christ, without the hope of the gospel, the grave is it. That death masquerades like this all-consuming beast. That there is in ancient literature this sense that death is like a god. In many cultures, death is personified as a god. Why? Because death consumes everything. Death takes everything. It claims everything. This idea that the grave is the, fi- like the final destiny is, the, is worm food. This is Francesco, Saint, before he was St. Francis, this was his view. This is, this is our view. This is so often this is our view. But towards the end of his life, of course, St. Francis, after many conversions, after much wrestling with the Lord, he comes to see her as sister death, something to be embraced, that this is a lie, this is not true. That death is an invitation to an embrace, that Jesus always comes in death, right? This is why he can call her sister and be embraced by her, because everyone will be embraced by her. This is not some macabre Thanatos, like, oh, I can't wait for death. No, no, this is something very deep and powerful. This is hard for us. This topic is hard for us, even as disciples. It just is. Because we live in a culture, we live in a time right now, in many ways where, like, death and dying are just not, like, really present realities that we face. Unlike the ancient world, right? Unlike the ancient world for... Jesus' contemporaries, or even like up through the Middle Ages, or even up through recent centuries, recent decades, that death was a very up-close and personal reality for everybody, but for us in contemporary culture, contemporary world, death is way off in the distance. People die way away from us. Like, we don't even butcher our own food, by and large. I used to say that with like, like, like everyone in the crowd would be like, yeah, I've never killed a chicken. Then I, I changed parishes. I'm now in Medina County. I'm at Sacred Heart in Wadsworth. I used to be in Cleveland Heights, and people were like, oh my gosh, chickens grow on trees. And uh, actually, they were, 
all vegetarians. No, I'm just kidding. Anyway, the, uh, but I go down to like Medina County, and people are like, I, I killed, like my fifth graders in my school butcher their chickens. I think it's pretty awesome. <laughs> I'm like, that's disgusting. Anyway, so. But to the ancient and medieval way of being, like death was up close and personal. It was behind every, behind every corner, right? Like there was no drugs. There was no antibiotics. There was no penicillin. There was no painkillers. Like I'm so grateful that I have not been born into a time where there is no, well, first, air conditioning, also, like, penicillin and painkillers. Like, <laughs> I have such a low pain threshold. Like, oh, my gosh. I went to the dentist last week, uh, Friday. It was horrible. It was horrible. Like, and I had, my head was numb. Like, my whole right side of my head was completely numb. Apparently, I have a very thick mandible, is what I'm told. I'm like... Is that a pickup line nurse? I don't know what's going on there. Anyway, so they put so much Novocaine in my head. I was, I was lying in this chair. At one point, I was getting so nervous that it was like hard to swallow. I'm like, this, is this how I die? Right here because of Novocaine. But even still with the Novocaine, there was so much pain. So much pain. Death and dying, man. Such a different experience that we have as modern people. Such a different experience. One of the weird things for us right now in our contemporary culture that we've just lived through some very weird times that COVID, in many ways, unmasked, and that's an intended pun, COVID unmasked our deep fear of death. That's what it did. In many ways, that's what the insanity was about. That it just shook people to the core and it just reminded people every single day it was just this constant message in your face. Every single person was talking about it. All the talking heads on TV, all the scrolling ticker numbers on the bottom of the CNN channel, counting the cases, counting the fatalities. It was just saying all day long, you are mortal, death is coming for you. You are destined to be worm food. This is the final destiny and it could come at any time, right? The other thing that COVID did, I think, was not just simply unmasking our fear of death. COVID unmasked, like, the great failure of the church for the past many decades. That we have failed. We have failed to adequately preach the gospel. We have failed to adequately preach the gospel. Sunday after Sunday, I get up as a priest and... We stand for the gospel. I have a permanent deacon. He always proclaims the gospel at Sunday Mass. He gets up there. He says at the conclusion of the proclamation, the gospel of the Lord, to which everyone responds. That was pretty good, actually. That was not bad. It was not bad. Usually it's, thanks to you, praise Jesus, donuts. It's something like that. Like, what we don't even realize is that, that that word, the gospel of the Lord, like, we have just, I have just announced to you the most incredible life-changing news that there actually has entered into this world the infinite mystery that all of our hearts are looking for, that that infinite mystery, who is life with a capital L, entered this world and wrapped himself in human finitude and frailty and hung himself like a, like a, like a worm on the fish hook for death to swallow. And then he got into the belly of death and he exploded it from the inside out so that there is no more death. That every Sunday, every proclamation of the gospel is just saying again to death, like death, where is your sting? You've lost. 
We have the best news. We have the best story. And as a church, we have failed tremendously in proclaiming this. Because here's the reality, that Christians are not supposed to be afraid of death. Christians are not supposed to be afraid of death. Let's just try this on for size. St. Paul, say, finish this sentence in your mind. Don't say it out loud. St. Paul says, for me, life is Christ and death is, fill in the blank in your head. Maybe some of you know this, so you already know you're already cheating, right? But anyway, for many of us, it's probably death is the Worst thing imaginable. Death is the calamitous end. Death is to be avoided at all costs. Death is horrible. Death is the worst. Is that what St. Paul says? Is that what the inspired scripture says? No. (laughs) I mean, if you get nothing else out of this tonight, meditate on this. For me, life is Christ and death is gain. We have not preached this in the church. Like, if we had been preaching this, we would not have been so rattled. We would not have been so rattled. Because Christians are not supposed to be afraid of death. Man. Powerful, powerful, powerful. Dying? Are we supposed to be afraid of dying? Yeah, sure, be afraid of dying. This kind of crap horrifies me, terrifies me. There are many ways that I don't want to die. Many ways. Many ways. Peter Craved, who was on the Pints with Aquinas podcast not too long ago, he was interviewed by Matt Fred, and he said this, and I think it's brilliant. He said, death is beautiful, dying is awful. Death is beautiful, dying is awful. I agree with him, like wholeheartedly across the board. Like, I have spent probably way too much time, way too much imagination, way too much energy like, thinking about all the horrible deaths that I don't want to die. Like, I, I remember when I was at my, my first assignment, there was a girl who came in, little girl, who came into school one day. She's usually very gregarious, very outgoing, bubbly. But that particular day, she was just really down. I was like, hey, what's, what's going on? And she just, my grandpa died last night. And I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Like, was he sick? Like, like, what happened? She goes, no, he just died in his sleep. Inside, I'm thinking, that is like the greatest <laughs> of all human ways to die. Like, asleep, belly full of food, on your tempur mattress, <laughs> underneath amazing, like, high thread count sheets. Like, he probably had some good whiskey before he went to bed. I'm like, do you know, like, fifth grade girl, do you know most people poop their brains out in human history until they die? Like, dysentery, eaten by animals, brought back into the food chain, and you're just like, my grandpa died in his sleep. Yeah, he's lucky. He is lucky. I pray to die in my sleep. Like, oh my gosh. Like, I have, like I said, I have such a low threshold for pain. So, like, the thought of, like, being burned at the stake. Like, I had, a, I, had a, I had a crisis. If any of you know Father Ryan Mann, you can ask him this story one time. When I was in seminary, I had a crisis one day when I realized that from all eternity, God, this might not strike you as weird, but from all eternity, God has known all of the people who would die by being eaten 
by sharks. And like, I can't think of anything worse than that. Like, you mean, God, that you have known all the poor people who would die like this. I just, this is not how I want to die. Okay. Y'all seem very okay with this. I don't, <laughs> like, you've worked through your deep ocean fears. Okay, I haven't. I haven't. Here's the reason why. When I, was, when I was younger, this is, we're going, I don't know how much time I've already used up, but when I was younger, we used to go on vacation during Shark Week, and, uh, yeah, and, like, you, just, like, you see the ocean, you just watch, like, all these seals swimming, and the great white shark be like, through the water, I'm like, and I just feel like a little fat baby seal making a, a crossing, and I'm going to get toasted. Anyway, Peter Kreeft, back to Peter Kreeft, Peter Kreeft. Dying is awful, death is beautiful. As a priest, as a priest, my brother priests know this, like you get very acquainted with, you get acquainted with death very fast. Death becomes a very integral part of your life as a priest. Summoned to the bedside of the dying often. Today I was just brought to, uh, I got a call, I went to a guy's house to anoint him. He's probably a few days away from dying. Um, and you get very familiar with sister death who has a very particular sound, particular smell, particular look. And there, there's just, a, there's just a, a powerful, just a profound sadness in watching the powerlessness of the family, just watching as life just ebbs away from this person. But the other thing about death, though, is that death... Inasmuch as it is awful in the dying, there is also such beauty in it. I think about, like, in the fall, like the colors of the leaves, they, they, they only burst forth their most beautiful, radiant colors right before they die. And I think that's true for human lives, many human lives. Like, the most beautiful stuff doesn't explode forth until the very end, both in the person's life and also in the lives around them. You know, I'm, I'm thinking about how just this exact right now, this time three years ago, um, my last surviving grandparent, my dad's dad, he was in the final days of his own earthly life. He died January 19th, 2020. It was brutal. Like he, he moved into my parents' house right after Thanksgiving. He had been diagnosed in October with stage four pancreatic cancer. He was 90 years old. His wife died when, uh, back in 2006, so he had been alone for a long time. Diagnosed with stage 4 pancreatic cancer, and he was just, there was no plan of him doing anything about it. He's like, I'm 90, right? Like, I'll be fine. He moved into my parents' house, and, and then it just was a very quick and slow decline, very quick decline from there. And uh, I'll, I'll never forget, I came home a lot during those days, and I got to witness some most amazing things, like amazing conversations I had with him. That it was like, uh, like here in this like final crucible, this final leg of the journey, like the most incredible stuff was being distilled in him. And then like my dad, man, it was amazing to watch my dad care for his dad in those final days. Like my grandpa's dying created the situation for my dad to, to dig down to levels that he didn't even know existed in him. Like, I was there when he, when he did the first shower with his dad. 
And I was there when like the first like real changing had to happen. And he like, we had, I psyched him up in the kitchen. I was like, you can do this. You can do this. You're wearing gloves. You'll be fine, right? <laughs> and he, he went into the room, came back 20 minutes later. He's like, I did it. I did it. And then he sat down and like a tear came down his side of his eyes. It was so beautiful. It was absolutely so beautiful. It was awful to see him waste away, but it was so beautiful to see what burst forth out of that, right? Dying is awful, and death is beautiful. And like I said, and Christians are not supposed to be afraid of death. And look, and if, as I say that, if you are sitting there going, I am, does that mean I'm a bad Christian? No, it just means you're human, right? It means you're human. Most of this talk, right, most of this talk is me preaching to me. It really is. We just need deeper conversion. We need that gospel, that amazing news to preach deeper into our hearts. Like, this is where in your own prayer you can go before the Lord, Lord, Jesus, shine your light upon this part of my heart that's so afraid. Like, help me, help me to not be afraid. Like, if all of this is true, Jesus, give me, like, shine light on this. Shine light on this. Here's the question, right? Like, why are Christians supposed to not fear death? In a word, Jesus conquered it, right? That's why. That's why we're not supposed to be afraid. And we say those words, but we don't really grasp their meaning. It's like, there's so many words in our faith that because we say them so often, like they lose their meaning, right? It's like the word banana. Like everyone's with me. Start saying the word banana. Banana, 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 banana. Like, right? After a while, you're like, what am I even saying? Right? Crisis conquered death. Crisis conquered death. Crisis What are we saying? And then, like, you go to Easter. You go to Easter Mass and you hear something from, like, the deacon or the priest, like, Jesus rose from the dead. So now we can all eat chocolate and be nice to each other. Isn't that good news? Really? Or, or you'll hear like, well, he, Jesus rose from the dead, so now we can die, and we can all go be with him in heaven. Okay, that's a little bit better, but still, that's just so vanilla. That's so blah. Is that really what the whole thing is based on? The early church, the early church fathers, they preached very differently about what Jesus did in his passion, in his passion, death, and resurrection. They, they, preached, they preached in such a way that they, downtown would get emails. I'll just put it that way, the way they preached. Listen, this is St. Ephraim, the Syrian. Listen to this. Death slew him by means of the body which he had assumed, but that same body proved to be the weapon with which he conquered death. Concealed beneath the cloak of his manhood, his God had engaged death in combat. But in slaying our Lord, death itself was slain. It was able to kill natural human life, but was itself killed by the life that is above the nature of man. Death could not devour our Lord unless he possessed a body. Neither could hell swallow him up unless he bore our flesh. And so he came. He came in search of a chariot in which to ride to the underworld. This chariot was the body which he received from the virgin. In it, he invaded death's fortress, broke open its strong room, and scattered all its treasure. Have you ever heard that on an Easter Sunday? Yeah, yeah, no. They preached this way because they saw and they understood that upon the cross, Jesus wasn't just simply like 
atoning for our sins, though he was. They preach this way not simply because they realize that, like, okay, yes, on the cross, Jesus is revealing the full breadth and depth of God's madness, his love for us. Yes, he's doing that, but it's so much more. They preach this way because they realize that on the cross, Jesus was waging war against the ancient foe. I love the preface for the Feast of the Triumph of the Cross. It says this, something like this, that he who deceived on a tree would himself on a tree be deceived. That on the cross, Jesus is the aggressor. He is the hunter. He is the one who is going after the enemy. That when he says it is finished, he's not saying it like, like, like meekly or like, like a wimp. Like, I give up. No, with like clenched teeth and fixed eyes. He's looking at death and saying to death, I say to you, death, it is finished. Like your reign is finished. He's waging war. Okay, this is an extended quote, but it just, I, I, I can't cut it down. This is Melito of Sardis, who's another early church father. You, this is Jesus the trash talker, is this what this Easter homily is. Listen to this. Who is he who contends with me? Let him stand in opposition to me. I set the condemned man free. I gave the dead man life. I raised up the one who had been entombed. Who is my opponent? I, he says, am the Christ. I am the one who destroyed death and triumphed over the enemy and trampled Hades underfoot and bound the strong one and carried off man to the heights of heaven. I, he says, am the Christ. Therefore, come, all families of men, you who have been befouled with sins, and receive forgiveness for your sins. I am your forgiveness. I am your Passover of your salvation. I am the Lamb which was sacrificed for you. I am your ransom. I am your light. I am your Savior. I am your resurrection. I am your King. I am leading up you up to the heights of heaven. I will show you the eternal Father. I will raise you up by my right hand. This is the one who made the heavens and the earth. And who in the beginning created man, who was proclaimed through the law and the prophets, who became man via the virgin, who was hanged upon a tree, who was buried in the earth, who was resurrected from the dead, and who ascended to the heights of heaven, who sits at the right hand of the Father, who has authority to judge and to save everything, through whom the Father created everything from the beginning of the world to the end of the age. This is the Alpha and the Omega. This is the beginning and the end an indescribable beginning and an incomprehensible end. This is the Christ. This is the King. This is Jesus. This is the General. This is the Lord. This is the one who rose up from the dead. This is the one who sits at the right hand of the Father. He bears the Father and is born by the Father. To whom be the glory and the power forever. And the people said, Amen. Woo! So you want to paint some war paint on your face, right? Go convert some heretics. I mean, like, come on. Like that right there. This is the general. This is the general. You know, I don't think we use the word befouled enough in our modern parlance, but I think we should. Just bring that back. Anyway, as a disciple of Jesus, right, death should be the thing. It should be the thing that I can't wait to experience. Because it means I will finally see him. Like my eyes, your eyes, which were given to you to see beauty, to behold the beatific vision. This is why you have eyes. To behold God, infinite beauty, infinite glory, infinite majesty. 
We can't, even ma- we can't even comprehend what those words mean. All we know are finite beauty, finite glory, finite majesty. Your eyes were given to you to see infinite beauty, glory, and majesty. And your eyes have not yet seen that for which they were made. Your ears have not yet heard that for which they were given to you. I haven't done yet with my body that for which it was destined, which is to participate in the inner life of the Trinity, to be filled with glory. Like, if death is the thing that ushers me home, because that's what heaven is, home. If death is what brings me home, then death isn't the thing that must be avoided at all costs. It's finally entrusting, like, your total poverty. Because that's what death says. You are a creature. You can't hold yourself in being. It's entrusting your total poverty to the utterly dependable Father who says to you, like, I will be there. I will be there on the other side and you will not go alone. He's there. He's there. So I've I've touched on this whole embracing sister death part of the title. I want to look at now and land the plane in, in a few minutes on this whole the subtitle part, the, the most sane way to live well. So if you keep in score, that's where we're going next. So sanity. Let's talk about sanity. We might say that sanity is having my mind conformed to reality. It's a pretty good definition. And what is the reality when it comes to death? Like the first reality is this, right? That you are going to die. You are going to die. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. This is a true story. Absolutely true story. I was at an event about a year and a half ago, this fancy dinner event, wealthy donor folks, those sorts of people. And during the dinner, this conversation that was happening around the table, there was this lovely woman sitting next to me who began talking about her sister and brother-in-law, as she would say, who are younger than us. She kept saying that. They are younger than us. She kept saying that, right? That last weekend, my sister and my brother-in-law, who are younger than us, can you believe they went and bought their grave plots? That's what she asked, to the table, right? With such incredulity, they are younger than us. Okay. Now this lady, this lady was no spring chicken herself. Let me just say this. She was lovely, beautiful makeup, nice hair, fine dress, all the things, very lovely, but you could tell she had some work done, okay? Over the last few years, some things had been pulled and tightened and... I don't think those are the lips the Lord gave her, just saying. So, so hearing all of this and thinking about the fact that she was herself probably pushing 70, I chimed in and I said, uh, I mean, that doesn't seem all that unreasonable to me. I'm like, we are all going to die. Okay. She looks at me. And when I say I'm not kidding, I, I, liter- I literally mean I am literally not kidding. She looks at me and she says, oh, I don't know if it's going to come to that. <laughs> I'm, I'm dead serious. <laughs> like spat my water up. <laughs> like. <laughs> now to this day, I really don't know what I was supposed to say in response to that. Like, what are you supposed to say when the person sitting next to you admits that she thinks she's an immortal goddess, you know? <laughs> Just slumming it with us mere mortals. Thanks for passing the butter. Like, I don't, 
I don't know. I don't know what I was supposed to say. But that woman was not sane is the point of the story. That is not sanity. You have to live in touch with reality. It is sane. It is sane to occasionally, even frequently, to meditate on your own mortality. This phrase has got into the bloodstream of the church in recent years. This phrase, memento mori, which means remember your death, has been a part of Christian tradition from the beginning. This whole experience, this whole tradition, this custom of bringing before your mind's eye the fact of your mortality. It's good. It's good to reflect on this, to think about your own death, to think about your finitude. It's okay, even, to get angry at this. Yes, it's true all along. Death is beautiful. Dying is awful. It's also true that Jesus, when he came to Lazarus' tomb, weeps. He hates it. He hates it. It's okay to get angry at your own death. I get angry at my own death. I get angry when I think about having to bury every per like assuming I outlive these people, having to bury every person I love. I hate that thought. It's good, though. It's good for the soul to sit with this, to sit with Koheleth, vanity of vanities. All things are vanity. It's all a chasing after vapor. Right? There are no, what's the phrase? There are no U-Hauls behind hearses. There's just not. You will die, and you will go into that box, into the ground, alone. Alone. It's good, though. It is good to meditate on this. It brings things into sharp perspective, into reality. It's good also, it is good also to let your hearts feel, if I could put it this way, like the, your, your heart's full-throated cry and hunger for the infinite. We are professional anesthesiologists of the heart, modern Americans, modern man. We've all heard the quote, the most famous non-scriptural Christian quote, you have made us for yourself, O Lords. our hearts are restless until they rest in you, St. Augustine. The, Augustine is the, he's, he is the doctor of human desire. He's the doctor of human desire. And if you know who loves Augustine more than anybody is, is Pope Benedict. Read Pope Benedict through the lens of Augustine. Anyway, we all have this restless yearning for the infinite. We don't just want some good things in our life. We want infinite good. We don't want just some beauty. Like, no one has seen a beautiful sunset and thought, okay, I'm all set for that one. Like, I never need another one of those, right? After an, like, after an amazing meal, no one thinks, I never need another amazing meal. You always want more. We want more and more. We want infinite love, infinite friendship, perfect love, perfect friendship, perfect communion. Like, the reason why I have this image on here is because I have this very intense love-hate relationship with spring. I love springtime, and I hate springtime. When I was in Cleveland Heights, those trees in that neighborhood are so stunning. I used to go on walks around the neighborhood and just would like, I would literally stop and I'd just be like, <laughs> not to TVs, but to to flowers and like they smell different and like the colors and oh my gosh 
just this explosion of beauty, right? This explosion of beauty. It's utterly gratuitous. Like, Father, you do not have to make so much goodness, right? But he does. He does. And it awakens this thing in my heart that says, I want this to be forever. But guess what? What happens to these beautiful, beautiful petals in like two or three weeks' time? What happens? They die. They fall to the ground and die. The beauty doesn't last. The beauty doesn't last. My heart, your heart, cries out for a beauty that lasts, for love that lasts, for friendships that don't end. We want this. More often than not, we just numb our hearts to this stuff. Because living in that ache, living in that reality, is just really hard. It's really hard. I don't want friendships that end or friends that betray. I want perfect, endless, infinite love and friendship and communion and connection. I don't want any of the people that I love to die and go away from me. Our hearts cry out for forever. The heart is the organ of eternity. It's the organ of the infinite because it was made for God. Your heart cries out for eternity. Love demands the infinite. But here's the problem. Love, like the heart can't grant it. This is what Pope Benedict said was the, the fundamental predicament, the fundamental problem of, hum, of the human person. He says our hearts demand the infinite, but they can't grant it. Our hearts demand the infinite, but they can't grant it to ourselves. So the question we cry out and want to know, is there a love that's stronger than death? Yes. His name is Jesus. Th that question is the question that the lovers in the Song of Songs ask. They're looking for a love that's stronger than death. And Jesus comes Easter morning to answer that question. There is a love that's stronger than death. And he has a name and he has a face. But here's the problem. If I never let my heart sit in and feel this, to feel my ache, to feel my longing, to feel my desire, like, if I never let myself feel the sadness of endings, because endings suck. When people move, it sucks. It's so hard. When people die, it's so sad. When beautiful flowers and petals fall to the ground, maybe this doesn't do it for you, but this does it for me, right? Or sunsets. I love and hate sunsets because it sets and it goes away. And that beautiful pink and orange, it, it fades to black. If you don't let your heart actually feel and sit in this and get honest, you're never going to be in touch with the very thing that Jesus offers you, which is hope beyond all hope. To say, like, you are not stupid. Your heart is not stupid or naive for longing for a beauty that doesn't fade because there is a love that's stronger than death. Like, to be aware of my own death, to live in that ache, is to be aware that my life is on a journey towards an end, towards somewhere else. Like, there is a goal. There's a goal to your life. And knowing the goal orients us in this life amidst all the distractions. I'm going to try to offer an analogy here for this. This is like getting into, like, how to live very sanely. Um, who here likes golf? Who are my golfers? Some people. Who has seen Happy Gilmore, a golf movie? Who knows what golf is? Okay. All right. Just want to make sure all of you at least know something about my analogy. Okay. 
I would say over the last five, six years, I've become a very semi-serious, highly amateur golfer. Okay. Uh, so let me explain to you how I golf or how I approach like a par five, for example. 585 yards, par five, Patrick Schultz got up to the tee box. This is how I do it. This is what I think. I think to myself, spirit of Bryson DeChambeau, fill my soul in this very moment. If you don't know golf, you don't know that reference. Ask somebody afterwards. He hits the ball like 800 yards. That's why I pray to him. Okay, anyway, so I get up to the tee box and I think my goal is to hit this ball as absolutely hard as I possibly can. I'm trying to put it in the hole from the tee box, 585 yards away. I've never done it. I know you're probably wondering. I've never done it. Okay. So what typically happens? I get up there, boom! Okay, so nine times out of ten, my ball, it goes straight down to the center of the fairway. Nah. <laughs> I golf with Ann. That's why I was saying that. It usually goes like 300 yards this way and then about 200 yards this way. Okay? I usually get a preview of every fairway before I get to it. So my ball is two holes away. Okay, so now I'm about 280 yards out. I grab my three iron, because now the goal is to put the ball in the hole from 280 yards out, two fairways over with my three iron. And I've done that exactly zero times in my life. So, but this is still my goal, right? Smack the ball as hard as I can. It, it goes about a foot off the ground, 500 miles an hour to about yeah, 180 yards away from the green. Okay, so we are doing great so far. Then I get my pitching wedge, 180 yards. What's my goal? I'm just gonna put it in the hole from 180 yards out with my pitching wedge. Because I've done that all sorts of times in my life. Never done that. Pitching wedge, poof, hit the ball and it goes straight into the sand trap. I love the beach, this is fine, right? No problem. <laughs> and I'm really good out of the sand, you know? So, so I grab my sand wedge and uh, I tell myself, you know how to do this. You don't know how to do this. Dig my feet in because that's what they do on the TV. And then I blade the ball and it goes flying across the green to the opposite sand trap because that's awesome. Grab the sand trap again, somehow miraculously get it out of the sand and it's just like three inches off of the fringe on the green. Yeah. Then I uh, grab my putter and now I had, it's, about, it's time for me to four putt the, the ball into, and now I've got like a 10 on the scorecard. And I love golf so much. So, it might not come as a surprise to you, but that's not how good golfers play the game of golf. Let me explain this. So I watched a documentary a few years ago on the life of Tiger Woods and there was all this great archival footage with Earl Woods, his dad, explaining the theory, like his philosophy of how he taught his son how to play golf. Tiger Woods and all the good golfers, they play golf backwards. They play golf backwards. And I don't mean like, like this. I mean literally, they think, they think, they start by asking the question, where do I need the ball to be on the green to make one putt? Okay, now I know that. So knowing that, where do I need my chip shot to be to make it on the green to make that one putt? Where do I need my approach shot in the fairway to be to make that chip to make that one putt? Okay, then where therefore do I need my drive to land to make that approach shot, to make that chip, to make that one putt for par? And that's where they put the ball. 
off the tee box. They play the game backwards. They play the game with the end in mind. Where do I need it to be so I can make that final putt? Friends, we're playing the only game that actually counts, which is the game of life. Like, we're all competing for the crown of immortality. And the question, the only question to consider, when you die, you'll come face to face with the Lord. The question, not if you die, but when you die, is what do you want to hear? Because it's going to be one of two things. One of two things. You will stand before love himself, the king of the universe. You'll have nothing to hide behind. No excuses anymore to give. No, well, I always intended to, you know, develop a prayer life, or I always intended to forgive this person. There's nothing to hide behind anymore. You stand there naked. And Jesus will either say to you, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into your master's joy, which is what everyone wants to hear. Or we'll hear the other thing. Depart from me, you accursed, into the eternal fires prepared for you, for the devil and his angels, which nobody wants to hear. But it's going to be one of two things. That's the end. That's the end in mind that we have to have in order to live well. Like the question has to be, just like Tiger Woods, where do I need the ball to be to make that one putt? How do I need to live my life so that I hear him say that first thing? Well done, my good and faithful servant. Like, you hear people say today, like, I literally heard it this morning. I was on, I was, uh, you know, YouTube, algorithms, all the things. God speaks to me through algorithms on YouTube. Anyway, <laughs> Joel Osteen hopped on my YouTube feed, and I was like, what do you have to say, Joel? Probably nothing good. Joel gets on there. God love you, Joel. He, but he gets on there, he says, he literally said this this morning. Well, I heard it this morning. Life is about the journey. It's not about the destination. I'm like, oh, you devil. Like, that is not true. You repent, you liar. Like, that's, it's because, quite frankly, that's, that's a lie. Life is not about the journey. Life is absolutely about the destination. There is a goal towards which your life is intended. There's a goal. Like, if it's true that we don't, if it's true that we don't contemplate our mortality enough, I think it's especially true that we do not contemplate our destiny, our eternal glory, this destiny enough. Again, Peter Crave said this, no one longs, he says, no one longs for fluffy clouds and sexless cherubs, but everyone longs for heaven. No one longs for any of the heavens that we have ever imagined, but everyone longs for something no eye has seen, no ear has heard, something that has not entered the imagination of man, something God has prepared for those who love him. Like, what is this glory that is being offered to us? I'll tell you this little story. St. Therese of Lisieux, she had this mystical experience in prayer where she was taken up to taste part of the glory of heaven. She comes back from this ecstasy and she writes to her spiritual director, she says, I would be willing, she says, I would be willing to suffer every martyrdom of every martyr that has ever lived, if I could taste one degree more of that glory. Like, what the literal beep does that mean? 
what does that mean? Like, like I, look at, I look at one of the martyrs. I'm like, heck no, I don't think so. Isaac Jones, you can have it, right? Therese is like, bring it on, I'll take it. Rip my skin off, right? That's the little flower. She's intense. What is this glory? The most sane way to live our lives is with this end in mind. It's with the end in mind. Jesus has this, this encounter with the rich young man who runs up to him and says, Master, what must I do? Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Which is the right question to ask. And he says, follow the commandments, right? Essentially, that's what his answer is. And he says, all of these I've done since my, my youth. And it says, Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, you lack one thing. Go sell what you have, give to the poor, then come follow me. And the rich young man goes away sad. Right? We know this story. He goes away sad. What was Jesus trying to do? He was simply asking for the man's heart. Right? Because what does he say? For wherever your treasure is, there also your heart shall be. By asking for this man's possessions, he was asking for his heart. Friends, if I could put it this way, like the most sane way to live your life, the most sane way to live your life is to constantly give Jesus your heart. There's this other story in the gospel where the master of the house closes the door and there's servants on the outside of the door who are banging on the door saying, let us in. Do we not preach in your name? Do we not drive out demons in your name? Do we not come to theology on taps in your name? And he will say, depart from me, for I never knew you. I never knew you. Jesus wants to know us. It doesn't just simply mean intellectual head knowledge, right? The word know in the Bible is deep interpersonal knowing. It's giving him access. It's having a prayer life. All of this stuff really comes down to such simple things. Let your heart be known by him. It's the most sane way to live your life. It's the most sane way to live your life. I want to end here by inviting us to contemplate with this song. I heard it just uh, last week for the first time. It's by Jeremy Riddle. It's a song called Home. Before we listen to it, I want to read this. If you want to do something to like really prepare for your death, I want, you to inv- I want to invite you to read. I think it's the greatest sermon in the modern era. It's written by C.S. Lewis. It's called The Weight of Glory. W-E-I-G-H-T, The Weight of Glory. Here's an excerpt from it. I invite you to close your eyes. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. We do not merely want to see beauty, though God knows even that is bounty enough. We want something else which can hardly be put into words, to be united with the beauty we see, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. That is why the poets tell us such lovely falsehoods. They talk as if the west wind could really sweep into a human soul, but it can't. They tell us that beauty born of murmuring sound will pass into a human face, but it won't, or not yet. For if we take the images of Scripture seriously, if we believe that God will one day give us the morning star and cause us to put on the splendor of the sun, then we may surmise that both the ancient myths and the modern poetry 
so false as history may be very near the truth as prophecy. Because at present, we are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and purity of mourning, but they do not make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see, but all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in and we shall come home. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, guys.